This podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets along with instant match updates for all. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app. So you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast for The Athletic, joined by our regular guests, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence, the uh, Athletic writers. Good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon. Hello. Good afternoon. Also, by, do you know, I say this every week, by an Arsenal legend, an Arsenal legend with amazing running power, I'd like to add. Mr. Lee Dixon, good afternoon, Lee. How are we all? Well, I'm getting my breath back, as you well know, because I ran, and I'll tell you how, how funny it is me running. As I was running, two blokes who went past me went, go on, son. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how often I run. Anyway, now normally, normally uh, we talk about games that have happened, stories that have been around for the last week or two. But obviously, we've had a little break. We call it the interlull, but it's not really, because it's not an international week. It's just uh, a week off. So we thought uh, we'd the spend... The, the lull, The yes. winter lull. The winter it? lull. I, yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it. So we thought we'd spend uh, our valuable time uh, talking about one of the greatest, possibly the greatest players ever to play uh, for the Arsenal. That is, of course, uh, Dennis Bergkamp. I mean, Paul Clifford on Twitter uh, actually uh, contacted us, wants to know what's our favourite Bergkamp assist. Now, we were going to go around and talk about favourite Bergkamp moments. Uh, Lee, you played with the man. Can I start with you, your favourite Dennis Bergkamp moment? Oh God, where do you start with that? There's, there's literally <laughs> hundreds of them that you can go on. Oh, and the thing is, the more I think about it, the more I just keep coming up with ra- random sort of probably non-moments to everybody else. But when you actually, I obviously had the, the benefit of playing very, very tight and close to him and seeing the stuff that happened on the pitch that perhaps, you know, from the stand you don't always see little intricacies of his game, um, the way that he passed the ball, little things like he always used to he always used to pass the ball to the side of your foot, whether it be right or left, he would pass it to the inside of your left foot if the person that was marking you or near you was closest to the outside of your left foot. So he'd pass it to the inside of your left foot, knowing that there was somebody on your right and he couldn't pass it to your right. He was that good. Yeah. He could pass it to wherever he wanted to. And when it arrived, the ball arrived with like velvet wrapped around it and a, and a <laughs> bit of cream and a cherry on top because it was just set up to do whatever you wanted to do with it. So, you know, I was always taught that the first, the first pass you see is genuinely the best one available. So you kind of just pass it. Um, the better players and the further up the, the, the list of brilliance you go, they can kind of go, yeah, that is a good pass, but what about this one? And then they'd be able to deliver that particular pass. So if Dennis passed you the ball, you all of a sudden he put you on a different level to everyone else because you knew you were in a great position. 
James, have you got a favourite Bergkamp it's moment? It's so assist, hard, isn't it? Yeah, it is so many yeah. assists, so many goals. I, I, the one I was thinking of, there were so many great moments in the early part of his Arsenal career in the late 90s, but one that stuck in my mind was in 2005, and it was uh, his penultimate season with Arsenal. And towards the end of the season, Arsenal played Everton. And Dennis, I don't think had been in the team all the time. And he came into the team that night and he played brilliantly. Set up a ton of goals, one for Robin Van Persie with a brilliant pass. And Arsenal won 7-0. And I just remember the whole crowd were sort of joined together, chanting, one more year, one more year. And Dennis said afterwards, he said he was really moved by it. It made him feel really emotional because actually his contractual negotiations with Arsenal towards the end weren't always easy. You know, they, I think they were quite abrupt with him in telling, well, you're getting older, you're going to play less, but it was the only place he wanted to play. And so I just remember everyone in the crowd that night sort of pleading with him to do another year. And he did. And it was perfect, really, because he did the final year at Highbury and, and signed off in style there. Amy? Well, I was I was watching um, a YouTube video on on just sort of his assists. Um, Amy has been watching a lot morning. of YouTube videos of Dennis Bergkamp. Well, I know it's a nice way to spend, uh, spend <laughs> the morning, I must say. And some of those touches were just ludicrous. I mean, it, it really was that. I remember when you used to watch him play, and you'd think, "Oh my God, he's seen something no one else has seen." And we became used to it. But he was one of the first players that you you had the pleasure of watching week in week out as an Arsenal fan, where you thought he is seeing things so far ahead of everyone else on the pitch and having that precision mm. to be able to measure these passes, they were weighted like utter perfection. It was so exciting and invariably the pass was more exciting than the finish quite often, yep. which is why we all fell in love with this idea of the, the, the visionary and the creator. And But I, if you ask me for my favourite moment, probably for Holland, in fact, which was the goal against Argentina, and I was very privileged to be in that stadium. And in fact... Anyone out there can uh, contradict me, but I, I like to imagine that the only people in the world who happened to be there when he scored that goal against Leicester and that goal against Argentina was Mark Overmars, Dennis and me. I mean, maybe not. Frank de Boer spelt the ball. Heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. It meant so much. It was obviously just a great moment as and of itself, that goal against uh, Argentina in the World Cup. But down in Marseille, the sun was beating down. It was a beautiful day. Holland-Argentina, a real classic, and all the ingredients. And then this this late drama with incredible majesty and beauty. But it knocked me almost over emotionally because having seen him score that goal for Arsenal as well. And when you saw an Arsenal player do something incredible on the international stage. We've become much more accustomed to it now, but, you know, in the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, growing up, it wasn't really Arsenal players who were the ones who had, you know, epic moments for the world to see. And it felt really, really special that our player was doing that and was kind of, felt like the centre of the football universe that day. I love, you know what I love about... It was really powerful. It was lovely. Both of you talking about, uh, James and and Amy, talking about emotional moments. And I, because I remember when Dennis scored that goal and the enormity of it hit him, didn't Mm. it? And he covered his face because he couldn't believe what he'd done in a quarterfinal of a World Cup, something so special. Also, that goal broke the Dutch goal-scoring record of all time. Wow. Which had stood for many years. So it it must have just meant an incredible sort of influx of emotions for him. And there'd been a bit of doubt over him going into the tournament. He was injured and missed the FA Cup final, of course. So I think at one point he thought, I might not be going. And so to get there, to be fit, to score that goal, it was a hell of a moment. Beautiful. Uh, If I can briefly have two moments, both assists 
actually. Uh, one was in the final game of the unbeaten season, that pass to Patrick Vieira, who just danced around the keeper and put it in the net, and we went 2-1 up. Magic ball from Bergkamp to Patrick Vieira! The captain, fittingly, gets the goal that might make history. I love that goal. I love the assist for that. I just love the pass. One that's better for me, and I, I can't, I'm not sure about I think it was against West Ham when Freddie Lundberg made a run in from the right and Dennis played a pass that I swear to you, pretty much everyone in the stadium went, who the hell's that to? <laughs> now, who the hell is, oh, De oh my God, as, as Lundberg came in and dinked it uh, over the goalkeeper and we won a very, very tight game. I don't think I'd ever seen a pass like that. It might have looked better from the upper tier than it did from the lower tier, just because you might have seen Freddie Lundberg's run. But my peripheral vision in the stand was not good enough to see what he was doing. Mm. Him on the pitch could do that. Let's talk about him when he first arrived, the impact of his signing. Um, Lee, I've spoken to Wrighty about, about this quite a few times, meeting yeah. him in the petrol station and all that stuff. Dennis Bergkamp, and very ex excited. What was it like for the rest of you when you heard about him signing and when he turned up and when you first saw him playing up close in training? Wrighty's story about the the petrol station is just, you know, <laughs> that that is just the best one. It's just so righty and so Dennis, it, you couldn't depict those two characters in a better way than that moment. And um, obviously his name was banded around and then all, all of a sudden he was there. And it was kind of like the validation that Dennis Burkamp signing for my football club gave to me. It was almost like, wow, if Dennis is signing, that yeah. means I really must be quite a good player then. Because he's, <laughs> he's coming to this team and he wants to play football with me. That's kind of like, so I was like... You were the main reason he signed, though, Lee. That's what I heard. It's in his contract, apparently. <laughs> I guess I with his deal, but that just got lost in the post. Um, so it was kind of like, oh, wow. that he, Wow. Like, I feel yeah. all of a sudden, I feel it. He made me a better player even before I met him. And then the second thing was, and it kind of ties into the first thing, it made me also think when I kind of collected my thoughts. God, I've got to walk my game a little bit, yeah. otherwise I'm out of this team. Because it was Dennis Burkamp was playing in it and, you know, he's going to need specialised service. He's going to expect, you know, the balls to be perfect for him and all of this sort of stuff. And he, he wasn't like that at all. He wasn't he wasn't demanding in that respect. But I think he, in kind of, without him knowing it, he kind of upped my game on two fronts because I kind of went... Yeah, this is kind of we're we're kind of a bit special now. We've got this guy who yeah. we've got a service. So, yeah, it was it was an amazing moment, and you know, history just takes care of the rest. What an absolute player! Well, Amy, you were at the press conference, weren't you? You were there when he announced. You knew you knew he was coming, though, right? Yeah, I think that. that I mean, these this was the days when uh, if there was a big signing, there was almost always a press conference, which they don't do nowadays. But it was almost a, this kind of um, pride in in parading something new that. That, that a club had acquired and the excitement. I mean, I do remember this set. People were sort of almost walking around with a with a pinch yourself sort of look on their face. There was a, I've not really seen it at that many press conferences. And also the, the timing of it back in 95, um, sort of early days of, of electronics and, and media and, and this, that and the other. They had prepared a montage of his of his uh, of his play, and they chose the soundtrack "This Is the One" by the Stone Roses. Yeah. 
and uh, the journalists all packed into the little press room at Highbury, which was pretty compact in those days. And the, the plinth at the top with the cannon behind, norm, you know, normally that's where the manager sits. They had about 20 chairs up there. Anyone who had anything to do with anything, all, half the board and um, it, uh, and, and the, the, the manager and um, everybody with David Dean, Ken Fry, they were all sat up there with these huge cat that got the cream sort of smiles on. People couldn't really contain things and be professional. It was as if it was just too exciting. And they another, played, another level. Yeah, they played. They played. This is the one. And I remember Dennis just cocking his his head a little bit so he could glance at, at what was going on behind him. And I, you're just watching this, thinking this this is beyond belief. I mean, it just felt unreal for Arsenal to have signed a player of that talent. Um, and I just think that expectancy on him was massive. And you know, it was funny looking back because there was the whole uh, Carlos kickerball thing. Um, Alan Sugar, who was the Tottenham chairman of the time, made a quite disparaging remark, which was based on the, this idea that at the time a lot of players came from abroad. They were only here for the money. They'd come and clean up, do a couple of years and, you know, w wander off into the sunset. Yeah. Um, and he made this observation about Dennis. And, of course, 10 years later, nothing really could be further from the truth. But I think what was also really telling, and, and Lee will be able to tell us something about this is that it felt like he changed the whole philosophy it felt like he came in and he was this great player and not only was he great but he was so professional and he you know he worked unbelievably hard on the training ground he was a ridiculous perfectionist what? he wasn't just there saying look at me I'm so good and I think it made everybody look at him and think actually nobody's to, to be complacent about anything mm. because he's so brilliant and look how hard he works. We, I mean, Lee, I want to get to that. James, you weren't a glint in your mother's eye at the time, <laughs> but you were, a, you were a child. It would have been a long gestation. I was nine. <laughs> right. Uh, so I think I found out on teletext, which is sort of how you found out about stuff. Were you aware days. of who Dennis Burkham was? Dimly. I was just trying to reflect now and I was thinking... I might be wrong, but the perception was that he'd had quite a tricky time in Italy, yeah, wasn't it? Yes. So, but his star wasn't in any way dimmed by that. Everybody still knew this is a world-class talent. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Italy, it was just a, it just wasn't for him, not just the, the country and the football, but also the club, I think, that he was at. It just, yes. they, they, they weren't prepared to build around Dennis and accommodate Dennis. And yeah. I think he, he felt very pressurised there. And even the, the lifestyle, it was intense in mm. a way that he didn't feel comfortable. And that was one of the things why, when he came to Arsenal, even though everybody thought Dennis Bergkamp has done so much for Arsenal. Actually, Arsenal did something for Dennis oh, as no well. Oh, no doubt. You know, it gave him, I think, the perfect environment to be himself and really enjoy his football, well, we'll which get, he hadn't been doing in Italy. We'll get to that. I mean, you, you alluded to the fact that he made players better. I mean, Lee, you said this yourself. You watched him in training. I mean, he mm. arrived at a time of, we could say, peak drinking culture, really, and he turns up and he does things differently even the way just the way he dresses, the, the the immaculate way he goes about his business, and I guess everyone looked at him and went, "Wow, this is someone we, we've got to step up." Yeah, absolutely. Let's not get to his dress sense just now because I'll I'll, I'll shatter the illusion. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't the best in the dressing department, but that's another story for another day. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll do well, we'll do Burkamp fashion tips at some point. Stitch fix. <laughs> yes, stitch fix. Yes, of course. Martin Keown, I think, is even better with fashion tips than Dennis Burkamp, as I understand it. But we'll talk about the way that you looked up to him in terms of the way that he played the game. Yeah, there's a there's a kind of um there's a honeymoon period for any player coming into a club, a new player. There's a there's a period of assessment that goes on from the minute you walk through the door to depending on who you are and what your reputation is, 
you get a certain amount of time to prove that you're one, you're in the group and you can hold your own and nobody has to look after you. And two, you've got exceptional ability that you're going to, you know, take the team to a next level. So we knew Dennis's expertise. We knew his history. We knew he's kind of, you know, not fallen from grace, but as you said, Amy, you know, that, that chance to play in the Premier League under Arsenal was a big thing for him with what had gone on in the previous clubs. And he was just ready for a new challenge, etc. Yeah. So the pressure was on him a little bit. So his initiation or his, his assessment period starts the minute you walk through the door. So you say, you know, you say hello in the dressing room. Hi, Dennis. You immediately check him up and down for his physicality. And he's got a very striking presence about him. He's, he's very tall. He's, he's very, very strong. Not a typical muscly guy as, as in, you know, wouldn't fill a T-shirt type thing in that respect. But when he strips off and you see very lean and sort of almost like a, um, a racehorse type muscle. So, you know, an, an incredibly strong legs and, and quick in training. We saw that on day one and go in the circle first training session, you'll go in and, and the new kid on the block will get thrown in the middle and you have to keep the ball off him. As soon as he literally touched the ball once <laughs> with his foot, all the lads looked around and went, oh, yeah, he's a player. He's a player. <laughs> We've got a player. He's one of them. It was kind of like, I mean, it took me, I think I was in year 11 before they said that. But, you know, Dicko's a player. He's staying. I've been here 10 minutes. <laughs> but with him, it was literally the first time he touched the ball. I think right, he looked at me and I looked at him. He said, Did you see how the ball came off his foot then? He almost caressed it with his leather boot. It was almost like a hand and it's not his foot. He was just, he was accepted instantly, and we didn't need to see anything. You know, even when he, you know, he he didn't score straight away. It was kind of so what? It's Dennis Burkamp. He's just what he was giving the team and the players from Monday to Friday. He almost didn't need to play on a Saturday because we were getting so much from him on in training. It was like. He's just a joy to be around. Can I just add to that? I think mainly, certainly the people around me when he first turned up felt the same way. We could see the class. Mm. Obviously, we wanted him to score. There might have been a few bits of, oh, really? We paid seven and a half million quid for that. But in the main, people were watching him going, my God, this guy's one of the best footballers we've ever seen. Yeah, and it was only about seven games or something, wasn't it, before yeah. he burst into life? Two brilliant goals against Southampton. I was just going to ask you, Lee, you know, we talk yep. about his quality as a player. What was he like as a bloke? This guy with an international reputation, a global yeah. star. He arrives. Yeah. He's probably on more money than most of the players there. He's a foreigner as well. How did he fit into the group in those in those early days? Yeah, he was he was accepted in straight away. There was no sort of. Um, he's very quiet. He's not. Um, he's not particularly typical gob on a stick footballer like the rest <laughs> of us. Um, you know, he, he was he was quiet in the dressing room, but assertive. Dutch people, I've I've got Dutch friends with very similar character to him, but he's got a really good sense of humour. He he kind of sat back and waited to sort of see where he fit in the most. We had a French slash English coach for away trips. All the French lads, all the staff sat at the front, then all the French lads sat next rows with the tables and all the English lads at the back. And it was very much us and them in a great sort of banter uh, situation. We always used to laugh and a joke with the French lads and, the, and vice versa. And it was a very healthy environment. Um, and Dennis didn't fit into that because he wasn't English and he wasn't French. But we managed to um, catch his signature on a, on a, on a 
contract and sign him up to the English lads at the back of the coach. <laughs> so, you know, the song We've Got Dennis Burkamp, I think, started on our coach because we managed <laughs> to get him away from the French lads. And uh, and he used to sit at the back with the, with the, with the English lads and wander down to chat to the French boys at, at some point. But he was just great sense of humour. He got on brilliantly well with Wrighty from a, on and off the field. Um, started playing golf towards the end of his career and we played a little bit together. He was just a joy to be around and he loved a laugh and a joke. I think he really enjoyed the English dressing room, the English sense of humour. and yeah. um, He could stand on the outside of it and look in and watch as being typically English and stupid. And then he could jump in and, and, and you know, make the conversation a little bit more cerebral and, and but still jokey. So I think he was a, he was a perfect player to have. And, and we all, you know, we all absolutely loved him. And he was so commanding in the dressing room to the point of, you know, Arsene coming in and being and taking over and introducing all these methods and, you know, supplements and vitamins and creatine and all of that lot. And we used to go along the table. I've probably told you this story before, but we'd go along the vitamin table in the morning before training and Dennis would be in front of us and me and Wrighty would walk behind him and every tablet Dennis picked up, we would pick up. And all the ones he said, I'm not taking that, we'd go, no, we're not taking that. So we'd, we'd take the same vitamins as Dennis Burkamp, hoping somehow that we'd have some sort of uh, effect on our ability, but obviously that was not the case. Well, it worked to a certain extent. I mean, we won the double shortly after he arrived. I mean, the thing about Dennis and Arsene Wenger, I wanted to ask you guys as well, was Dennis Burkamp from the eyes of, of the fans and people watching it from the outside, was Dennis Burkamp almost a perfect embodiment of what Arsene Wenger wanted to do? Do you think? hundred mm. percent. I mean, I remember, I think it was David Dean saying about Dennis that he was the first brick in the wall. You know, they wanted to change Arsenal. They wanted to rebuild and for the club to become something that it wasn't, to become international, to become adventurous, to become a kind of shining light on the international stage. And Dennis was that vital first step to that, I think. And obviously Arsene coming in, I mean, I think they straight away, although, although Dennis spoke very highly of Bruce Rioch, um, you, you'll do well to ever find him suggest that you know he wasn't that happy in that period or he didn't think it was that great. But I think obviously Arsene coming in, it made so many instant connections with everything that he'd sim- grown up with. Are they similar characters, do you think? Arsene well, I think they're two highly, highly intelligent people um, who have a kind of perfectionist streak when it comes to football uh, and, a, and an artistic view of, of what football is and can be. So I think that, that straight away connected them. Um, but even in, you know, in terms of their their sort of thinking about about how footballers should live. I mean, obviously, so much was made when Arsene arrived of you know cutting out the drinking and eating broccoli and you know changing your whole lifestyle and trying to be more of a kind of athlete that you know what kind of petrol are you putting in your body? Don't yeah. put rubbish in. You know, you, this mm. is your your tool. But Dennis was like, yeah, okay, but you know we. I kind of grew up with this. It wasn't rocket science to him. It might have been transformative for the rest of the English game, but Dennis was doing that anyway. Yeah, but yeah. when you see a player playing the way he does, you think, as Lee was saying there, I'm going to put the same things in my body that he is because that could help. Of course, and there are different kinds of leaders in football clubs, and I think Arsene would have called Dennis a technical leader. He was someone who showed away by example. And I think he and Arsene were such kindred spirits because they had an appreciation for the sort of the artistry of the game, but also the science of the game. There was sort of the creativity, but also the geometry. And uh, I just think that as the team developed and as Burkamp 
aged. He sort of just became the the brain of that side. And when yeah. you look into the later years, you know, he really was the the guy who made it tick all the time. There's a, a quote from from Arsene that he, when we spoke about about Dennis um, for the Invincible book that I wrote, and he said. Dennis is the science, the intelligence, the charisma. I have seen Dennis from the first to the last day of his career focusing on every single pass. Dennis was an intelligent perfectionist. And I think that sums up why the two of them connected that way. I must have told you my Dennis Burke. I must have done my fight with Dennis Burke out in training. <laughs> I don't remember it. Did you arrive a bit lately? No, we were both injured coming back from, I think we were playing Tottenham at the weekend and Arsene sent us to train with the uh, the reserves because they were doing a bit extra. It was on a Thursday and the first team had played so they weren't doing much training. So he sent me and Dennis to train with the reserves and we were on opposite sides of an 8v8. And Dennis, as you know, which was part of his strength, was uh, could look after himself. And training was, you know, he was a full-on trainer. Yeah. He had to be because we demanded that, but he was like that anyway. And I tackled him and fell on the floor. And then he stamped on my calf as he, you know, accidentally on purpose, which I took uh, umbrage to and kicked him while I was on the floor, which is never a good idea when you're lying on the floor to kick somebody. So he reached down and grabbed me by the throat and and I stood up and threw a right hook that took him just above <laughs> the ear. And as, he, as I clipped him around the ear, he did a straight jab with his left straight underneath my bridge of my nose and we started throwing haymakers wow. in the on a Thursday afternoon playing Tottenham on the Saturday. And at that point, Arsene Wenger was walking over to check on his two players that he wanted to be fit for Saturday and saw me <laughs> and Dennis slugging holes out of his <laughs> I think he said, Lee, leave Dennis alone because obviously he didn't want to injure him. He wasn't too bothered about... Dennis punching me in the nose at the time. But <laughs> and we, we saw the funny side of it about 20 minutes later when we were having lunch and uh, giving each other a kiss and a hug. One of his strengths, Dennis, was the ability to be able to adapt himself into the environment, you know, apart from obviously his one weakness, which the fact that he didn't he didn't fly and he didn't travel was obviously a, a, a problem. And uh, But... No other player in the club could have got away with, got away with it. It's a wrong, it's a wrong word, but that, that that sort of leniency of not forcing him to go somewhere would never have been lent to anybody else because it would have been right. Well, fine, we'll just put someone else in the team. But we quickly realised that the Champions League draw was more important than it ever been when we all sort of sat down to listen to who we got. And it was whether Dennis could get there or not was the key. Nothing else mattered. It didn't care who it was. How far is it? What's the logistics? Can Kiev. we get? <laughs> yeah, Kiev, yeah. Kiev, yeah. I mean, I've got a story about that. But anyway, was there ever any chat about that among the players? You know, about his unwillingness to fly because it's so unusual. You know, so many footballers they do travel, even if they do have a bit of a concern or a worry. Was there ever any? How can I put it? Were, were people ever <laughs> sort of you know talking about it and saying this is a bit odd? Got mentioned pretty early on, you know, when when we realised it was it wasn't just a a thing, as in, you know, he didn't want to do it, and it was kind of like, no, this is this is how it is. I don't get on an aeroplane, and so the lads just went, oh, fine. So all the old, well, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just do that? Was from an early start of his career, we knew that that wasn't going to happen. So mm. accept it. If that had been me or somebody, there would have been 
huge amounts of pressure from the lads to go, don't be stupid, dicko, just get on the plane. Have you know? a drink, we, get on the plane. Yeah, it would absolutely it would have been one of those. Take some tablets, you know, get some sleeping tablets off the doctor and go to sleep or Mr. T or whatever. It was kind of like, <laughs> it, it, it didn't really matter about any of that stuff because we knew he wasn't going to do it. So we accepted it because of the brilliance of, of who he was. Just going to read you a quote from his book, uh, fantastic book, Stillness and Speed, that came out a few years ago about his fear of flying. And Dennis said, Annoyingly often I was told I should do something about it. People would say, you can take a course to cure it, you know. That really pissed me off. And I think it's fascinating because, you know, guys intelligent as Dennis... He really took a stand on this, you know, and, and it, it, he put himself up to be shot at in many ways by critics to not fulfil part of his kind of contractual obligation to be available to play football matches. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't do that lightly. He was absolutely, had such strength of conviction about it. And some people saw it as a weakness, you know, oh, he won't do this, he won't do that. But actually, I thought it showed a tremendous side of his character that shows strength that, that despite everything, he, he just couldn't countenance it. He took a stand and that was it. Do we know anybody else who, in world football who's ever done that? I'm not, I don't mean just a one-off. Has actually stuck by and, and said that. I can't the... think of anybody. I certainly don't. No. But no, you know, no. there was a period that Arsenal sort of tried to get him to games, and as you mentioned, Lee, when the draw was made, that it was like, could he make it? And could he not? And not Olympiacos. Well, yeah. there were. I mean, there were certain games that he he did go to overland, and I remember yeah. often in those games, he really didn't play very well. And I don't think that was the burden of travelling overland or, or taking a train or a long car journey or this or that. I think it was this extra... Exactly, this this sort of extra anticipation and expectation on him. He's, you know, this specialised journey. I mean, the the Copenhagen uh, European final in, in 2000, which I'm sorry to bring up, <sighs> but, you know, he, he went to that uh, overland and... You know, like like everyone else on didn't the night, didn't up. really play very well. No, I uh, play uh, well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, but it was uh, the the one quick story I, I will tell as well is that he was actually going to come to Kiev when Arsenal drew Dinamo Kiev in I think the first Champions League group stage they had. Rebrov and uh, and Shevchenko I, I, destroying I, I, us I in think, that toilet yeah. of a stadium. Um, but the, the draw was like Olympiakos, Dinamo Kiev, and somewhere else miles away. And my boss at the time on the Observer said, "Amy, see if there's any way that Dennis Bergkamp can get to these." matches and I wrote a piece about it about how he could actually do it taking these trains and and uh, you know boats and this that and the other and one night one sort of random Sunday night I, you know I was really sort of settled down on the sofa I'd had a couple of glasses of wine half a seat my phone rang it was David Dean I was sort of immediately perked up and thought oh what have I done you know what's going on and he goes uh, hi Amy look I've got someone to speak to you and the next voice on the phone was Arsene <laughs> At which point I thought, oh, Christ, don't say something stupid. You know, wake up, get a grip. And uh, Arsene said, hello, Amy, tell me about this train. And they <laughs> actually ended up sending a um, guy from the marketing department or something on a dry run to see what the what the wow. facilities were like on this overnight uh, voyage to Kiev. And he came back and said, look, it's a bit uncomfortable. The beds are quite small, you know, it's not great. But Dennis agreed to it and they booked four tickets for Dennis, his brother, and a couple of sort of physios and medics or what have you to go by train. And I managed to get in on this trip and go and book to go on the same train. I wasn't going to be in the same carriage, but it was like, what a story, you know, on the train to Kiev with oh, Dennis Bergkamp. The game before on the Saturday, Arsenal played Coventry away, went up to Coventry, and uh, Dennis got some kind of mystery knock about 10 minutes from the end of the game and sort of gingerly <laughs> limped off. In the press conference, I said to Arsenal, uh, how's Dennis? Then he went, oh, I don't think he'll be making it to Kiev. So I went by train. 
to get <laughs> and Dennis didn't. I mean, it came about, by the way, just so people don't know, it was 1994 World Cup, right? Turbulence. And he said, I'm never, after I get back from the USA, never flying again. Um, and it's a couple of questions, briefly. Gareth Stevens on Twitter, do you think the non-flying Dutchman tag tarnished Dennis Bergkamp's reputation and, and affect Arsenal's performances and results? And, and Jabal wonders, if Dennis was not afraid of flying, how many Champions Leagues would we have won? I mean, we should point out also, this was around the same time we were playing the games at Wembley as well which also might not have helped. But do you have a view on that, Lee, briefly? No, I think, and he, obviously, if you've got him in every single game and he's, and he's you know, playing in every single game, you've got more chance of winning those games. But overall, did it affect his career? No. I wouldn't have said so, because I think, you know, we got more out of him when he didn't play and he could probably rest on those games. We got more out of him the following week when he played on the Saturday because he was nice and fresh. So I think it swings and roundabouts, to be honest with you. Now, that 1998 uh, double season, he got the goal of the season winner. Which was that? Barnsley? Was that uh, Barnsley Leicester, away? Oh, it was the Leicester one. Of course it was, yeah. And he was he was PFA and Football Writers uh, Player of the Year. Uh, I mean, Lee, you were watching him up close. It was just continuously incredible watching what he could do. I'm, I'm sure. Does that Does that wear off? Or are there moments when you're not playing for a second, you're just a spectator like everyone else? I got to know him quite well on the pitch because he played, you know, he did a lot of his work down my side and he would come short and spin into the holes. And I I learned his body language pretty early. And we had a kind of uh, almost a telepathic thing between us where I kind of knew when he was going to make the run. I knew where he was going to go. And just by looking at the shape of his shoulders, the shape of his, you know, where he was holding his arms to hold the defender off, would mean you know that he wanted it to feet and he would so I wouldn't have to wait I just knocked the butt so he kind of he kind of did a lot of my thinking for me and so that's the yeah. thing somebody said um some and I'm, I think it was I might have to give Perry Groves a little nod but he got it he pinched it from somewhere <laughs> he said watching Dennis Burkamp play it's like he's watching himself from the stand you know on a game so yes. he's like he's you've taken him off the pitch you put him sitting next to you and he's watching himself and because that's that's how easy the game looks from the stand if you can play the game like that on the pitch then you are a world class and he was that that was him in a nutshell go on James. there's a great john hartson quote as well about dennis where he says if dennis played in the snow he wouldn't leave footprints which <laughs> i think is great you, you did almost float on the air and, and that telepathy that lee's talking about one of the best things i think about dennis is he made other players so much better. And if you think about the partnerships that he built in his time at Arsenal, his partnership with Mark Overmars, with Ian Wright, Nicholas with Nicholas Anelka, with Freddie Jungberg, with Thierry Henry, the, the, the transformative effect he had on other players' careers too. Well, I mean, this was it was a very interesting point that they all said, and I'm sure you'd agree, Lee, and Lee, and Amy, you would have heard this from the players as well, they all made runs that they wouldn't have made if someone else had the ball. But when Dennis yeah. had the ball, they went, oh, I can go in this position. Go on, Amy, you wanted to... Well, I was just thinking, remembering something about 98 double that always fascinated me. Dennis Bergkamp was injured for the FA Cup final and quite hurt by this because he grew up idolising the Cup final because he was a big fan of English football yeah. and he wanted to play in this showpiece. And as you mentioned, he was player of the year by a mile, you know, goals that were winning one, two, three on match of the day, uh, best goals and so on. Every, you know, everything was was phenomenal that season for him, except that he didn't get to play in the cup final. And at the party at Sopwell House after that cup final, Dennis was in a bit of a blue mood, really. He was sat in the corner by himself, um, 
didn't really feel that he could join in because he hadn't played in the final. He somehow felt that he was it wasn't really his right to be a big part of the celebrations of that particular achievement, even though obviously the team had achieved the double and much more beyond. And that shows his humility. Uh, exactly. And actually, it took quite a few people to go up to him. It was almost like a concerted effort amongst a few people there saying, like, go, go up one by one, but like, don't make it too obvious and tell Dennis how valued he is. And a few people went up and said, oh, Dennis, you know, wouldn't be here without you, you know. You're, please come and, come and join in. But I think it's a fascinating insight into the man and how he feels about himself and his place in the group that he needed almost some convincing to be kind of to, to be able to let go for himself and say, okay, I'm I'm in on this. Lee, did you see that side of him? Yeah. Um I don't funny thing is I don't remember him not playing in the cup final. That's how immersed <laughs> I thought you were gonna game. say you don't remember that night because you were a bit of a blur, but that's another story. I think, he, I think we had free drink tickets, so I asked him for his drink ticket because he was in the corner. Um but he was yeah, he was he was everything that you kind of thought a pro should be and when you were when he was down he was he wasn't down very often but he was with righty you know when he's down because yep. he's it's obvious uh with dennis because he was quite shy and quiet himself you didn't always know what was going on with him so he was that's why you know he's he had the nickname the ice man because you weren't quite sure when you looked in his eye and then all of a sudden he'd break out into a a laugh and a smile and you kind of go, oh, right, that, yeah, he's okay or whatever. So he was he was quite a hard one to read at times. You know, and he was that, that type of character in the dressing room. In in uh, 99, when we lost that uh, semi-final to Manchester United and he missed that uh, penalty, uh, or yeah. it was saved by Peter Schmeichel. And I don't really particularly even want to talk about it because we were sitting, we went to the first game and then the second game we went, you know what, if we get to the final, we'll go to that. So we watched it at Alan's place and... Um, when he missed the penalty and then uh, Gig scored the goal, we just turned the telly off after after that. But we thought, well, can't can't watch this anymore. But when he missed the penalty, did you feel? Did you, I mean? Did you have to pick him up afterwards? Did it take him a while to recover? Have to pick him up. <laughs> I don't, know if you know, I don't know if you saw the rest of the game, but I just got my arse kicked. Ryan Giggs about eight times. There one was move. that. There <laughs> was. To pick me up. Yeah, but, you know, apparently he never took a penalty again afterwards. I bloody hope not as well. He cost us a bloody... No. Come on, it was a good save. It wasn't actually that. It wasn't, oh, I think it's not, it's not one that I would classify as a miss. But I do think it says something about Dennis that he was a very accomplished penalty player before and after that he just declined. Yeah, well, I, I, if he'd have put his hand up for the next one, he would have got outvoted. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what that's, I like about this? The professionalism, right? That just shines through, Lee. That, you know what? He missed a penalty. Because let's be fair, you were. I always felt that Arsenal were basically as good as Man United that season. And Dennis would have would have taken that very badly, as would you. For, for yeah, not... no, if he'd have scored that penalty, we would have won the double, no doubt about that. Yeah. The impetus would have been with us. We'd have gone on to win the league. They would have made them out have won the European Cup. But they, that season was made in those last few moments, one way or the other, for us and for them. And I, and I have to say, and, and this is the, probably the only time that I ever had a bad feeling about anything Dennis was going to do. And it's easy to say now because he missed it. But when the penalty was given and the timing of it, and Keane had been sent off, and and I never used to watch penalties. I always, when I wasn't, never used to watch them. When I was taking them, I had my eyes closed. Um, I always used to walk up to the halfway line and watch David Seaman. I'd turn around and watch David Seaman, 
And uh, as I turned around, I thought, God, I've got a really bad feeling about this. And I look, I was watching Dave, and all the United fans were at that halt end oh. of the of the uh, Villa Park. The vision, I can see it now. I can obviously I can't hear him running up and taking it, but I can. Get, there's a there's a lull just before a sound lull, just before a goal goes in or a penalty's taken, when everyone goes waits for it and it went quiet and then all these fans behind David Seaman were jumping up and down in the corner and I could see Dave just put his head down and I just had that feeling that he was going to miss it and that's the only time I've ever had it and you know the rest is history but after the game it was no there was no specific you know don't worry Dennis you just cost us the <laughs> the double because <laughs> it was because it was you know Patrick Vieira to blame for his ridiculous side crossfield pass yeah. towards me and then my five attempts to bring gigs down and then yeah. you know yeah. the rest we do know the rest um i mean look we don't want to end our chat with you uh, about <laughs> Dennis talking about uh, sorry Amy you want to say well, something well you could i mean you know this this guy is an invincible well, you know, that's it's a lot. Point. It's great talking about '98 and mm. all those times as well. But let's also forget that his legacy is changing. A, you know, an entire sort of impression of a football club. But also, you know, he 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 won so much, including this golden this golden achievement. I think that something that's sometimes overlooked with Dennis is that he did change his game. If you look at him in his early twenties, he was much more athletic, you know, quicker, playing almost off the shoulder at times. But then if you look at him in his mid-30s, in that invincible side, he kind of created almost a new role for himself as this playmaker, this, you know, number 10, I suppose. And it was really, really showed his intelligence, I thought, the way in which he was able to adapt to his physical shortcomings at that stage, but still exert such a massive influence on the pitch. Lee, sum up um, what he did for the Arsenal. He transformed the game as I was playing it, you know, and I played with some amazing players. We were pretty good all over the pitch, but he was our icon. To sum it up for me, when I was standing in the tunnel before I went out, there's all these thoughts going through your mind about, you know, staying positive, do your job, do this, do that. You've got a million thoughts going. You're nervous, you you feel sick, you, all these things. Even towards a lengthy career, you get nerves, etc. and you kind of had the importance of the game that you're going to play in because they were all big playing for Arsenal anyway. But you kind of got... And I always had the reassurance and what calmed me down more than anything was like everybody else said and the fans said we've got Dennis Burkham and when you can say that about a player and it just instantly calms everybody down you go that's the 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 size of the um of the man let's not go down to the the comparison with other players in the modern game because he was he's head and shoulders above any of them Break Off is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each hand-picked especially for you. Try and everything at home, style with other items in your wardrobe. For your stylist time, you pay a charge of just £10. Remember, you try before you buy. Delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That is S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X .co.uk forward slash athletic.
Tommy, you've written a piece about someone we hoped would become a Dennis Bergkamp figure. Hasn't worked out that way. Um, Mesut Ozil, who is back in the team at the moment, is picked in every uh, game. But you highlighted some very interesting things about the way that he's passing the ball and who he's passing the ball to. Yeah, I mean, like most people, I mean, I'm fascinated by Mesut. I, I find that I watch him a lot and uh, yeah, I'm trying to work out what's going on, what he's thinking, what the team's trying to do with him, what he's trying to do with the team. And part of that fascination is because, you know, in common with Dennis Bergkamp, he has incredible technique and vision, uh, above average compared to most people that are on most pitches that mm. he shares. Yep. Um Unlike Dennis, the way that he uses those gifts isn't quite the same because Dennis was a fighter. I mean, you know, you just heard Lee and and any of his teammates would tell you that he didn't mind mixing it, that he wouldn't be bullied, that he had a real kind of determined attitude to go with those sort of specialist uh, gifts that he had. Meza is such a different creature but I think what, what I found interesting, the other, I was watching him the other day and there was just this little moment. It was against Sheffield United at home. The ball went out of play for a throw-in. The ball boy kind of really chucked it at him and he just nonchalantly, with, with the most superb little flick, just kind of just, just sort of tapped it into the air and then just did a few more little keepy-uppies with beautiful skill and then lobbed it over to whoever was going to take the throw-in. And he's still so unbelievably good on the ball. Yeah. But actually using that efficiently in games has become something that's not happening easily. And then I, I sort of felt like I wanted to remind myself of how good he was and re-watched highlights from his best season, which was the 15-16 season when Arsenal were runners up to Leicester. And if you take the time to go and watch that again, it's worth reminding yourself of quite how effective and brilliant he was. That was the team that had Alexis Sanchez, where he had a great understanding. That had uh, someone like Giroud, where he could be Rambo. those lofted balls, runners from midfield, different kind of options. Even Walcott mm, with his yes. speed, and and it seemed to bring out the best in him. And also, perhaps this, the team was slightly better built behind the midfield, so that he, there was not that sense that he had any responsibility for doing any of that kind of work. Nineteen assists, which is not what Arsenal is nowadays. No. He got nineteen assists. He got six goals. I mean, he was involved with something like whatever twenty-seven goal involvements out of 45 appearances that season. That's a fantastic return for a creative player. Yeah. And the variety of of, of uh, things he was involved with was amazing. You know, his assists went to like six or seven different players. He was pinging, you know, different types of ball from different areas of the pitch. He just looked like a guy who was absolutely kind of at one with what he was trying to do on the football pitch. Outrageously is, talented. Yeah, which is not what, Arsenal are seeing now. He's out there, he's playing, he's still passing the ball accurately on the whole. But because of the way this team is set up, partly, and because he's not in the best of form for whatever reason, partly, maybe it's a confidence thing, I have no clue. But his passes are invariably uh, going to safe places. And if you look at the three players he's passed to most often this season, it's Guendouzi, Torreira and Xhaka. Three defensive midfield players. Not going to get any assist so, that way, are you? Exactly. No. Whereas in at his peak in 2015-16, the part his most common pass was to Alexis, Alexis Sanchez, Sanchez, and his next most common pass was to Aaron Ramsey. So you can just see from that statistic alone that things have have shifted in that way for him. And 
I would love to think somehow that that for him and for Arsenal that they can return to <laughs> yeah. to him being you able know, to have that kind of impact. You know what? I, I don't know whether that's possible. Or I'd, not. Like I'd like peace. to think that it could. I'd like peace in the Middle East. <laughs> It's not going to happen, is it? Uh, James? Yeah, well, I, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, I think there are lots of different reasons his productivity's dropped off, but I also, I almost wonder if, talking about Dennis, if, if the way that he had that kind of second coming in his 30s gives us a bit of a false precedent of what's actually possible. I mean, if you look at the way Ozil's numbers have declined, is that not just a player who's now beyond his peak? Well, yeah, but also look at the team he's in. Dennis Bergkamp, when he yes. reinvented himself, was True. in the possibly the best team that's ever been at the club. Very true. Dennis was surrounded by much better players. Also, Dennis, he did have an effect on the game in a different way to Mesut Ozil. I was trying to explain, you know, Kaka was was seen playing street football in Hoxton the other yeah. day. He was trending on Twitter. And Rosie, my partner, said, well, who was Kaka? And I was trying to explain the sort of player he was. He used to ghost into positions. And Mesut Ozil had a bit of that as well. Mm. The trouble is with players like that, they, they can seem peripheral even when they're doing loads of good things. When they're not doing anything, you don't even know they're on the pitch. Dennis was never that guy. Right. Mesut Ozil, I think, has been that guy and more and more as time has gone on. Yeah, and I think, you know, the fact that coaches continue to pick him for the most part tells you that they are still happy to an extent with what he's doing. But it is a change and he's not influencing games. He's not deciding games, which is what he did for Arsenal in around 2015-16. It doesn't feel that way. It, it, it doesn't look like that at the moment. And now, granted, he's not the only one having that trouble in the side. You know, you've got people like Lacazette who are, whose productivity has also sort of fallen off a cliff of late. So I think it's a good point to make about the, the calibre of players you're playing with and the calibre of team that you're playing in, that's certainly not helping Ozil. And he gets picked by Mikel Arteta. He also was picked by Freddie Lumber. Yeah. One manager who didn't pick him, Unai Emery, mm. you wrote a piece because Unai Emery has come He's come out fighting, hasn't he, in some he has, French yeah. football uh, interview? Well, I mean, look, I can completely understand it from his position. There's a degree it's to another which gig. he's got to get another gig. Yeah. You know, he's got to set out his stool and say, give his side of the argument. I don't think it's an argument that stands up to much scrutiny, though. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, it's that thing where blame seems to be sort of apportioned to other quarters when really I think he does need to take a bit of a look at himself. And I, I, the thing that I was particularly bothered by was sort of he said, well, look, the results haven't dramatically improved yet and without me there. And I think that is true, but I sort of think that's because Mikel Arteta's doing a bit of a firefighting job, really, given the mess that he sort of inherited. It certainly feels that way. I mean, the stats was the other thing that interested me in yeah. that piece as well. You know, less shots on goal, more... There's a stat that I love, more big chances conceded. Mm. But I didn't know that was a trap. More uh, a big stat. chances conceded, less big chances created. I mean, I think he slowed the decline of Arsenal temporarily, but only temporarily and you know since the spring and since we failed to make the Champions League Arsenal have been a club pretty much in free fall until Mikel Arteta turned up also had a dig at Arsene Wenger as well actually well I also think it was just a little bit uh, a strange rewriting of history to turn around and imply that you know there was progress in that first season and like they did well to finish fifth and get to the final of the uh, Europa League when actually the cause of finishing fifth rather than further up and the catastrophe of being humiliated in Baku, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's not success. Mm. That's not something he should be 
proud of and sort of, you know, almost putting out there as a selling point for a future employer. Certainly didn't feel like a successful season at the end, I have to say. We didn't, oh, oh, yes, let's watch the video for 2018, 2019. Can't wait to see that. Um, they've gone to Dubai for a couple of weeks, a bit of warm weather training mm. and a, a bit of rest and recuperation. And, and I guess the first chance that Mikel Arteta has really got to work with the players without too much pressure... Um, they had a pretty poor performance of, uh, against Burnley. Hopefully, what, what's he going to do, Mikel Arteta, maybe to ramp up the progress now? I mean, you you wrote a piece, James, also about the backroom staff as well. Yeah. I learned more about backroom staff in that piece <laughs> than I've ever learned about the backroom <laughs> staff in the past. I know. Uh, was it Albert Stuyvenberg? That's right, Stuyvenberg, Stu- yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure on the pronunciation, to be honest. You're no, probably okay. more right than me. But yeah, he's one of the number twos who's come in. Steve Round, the other guy. Freddie Jumbo's still there. It sounds encouraging, the way you wrote it. I must say, I read it and I thought, oh, I'm encouraged. By these people, Steve Round, brilliant. <laughs> I like the sound of him already. He seems like a good guy. I think it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because Michael Arteta had a long time to think about this. You know, he had a long time to think who's going to be the the people that I use to assemble my team. Also, who's available? Who can I get? Who do I trust? I actually spoke to someone yesterday who was away with Arsenal in Dubai, and they said this has been a really beneficial period for that group because. They haven't worked together. No. They don't know each other well. Bear in mind, they inherit a load of other staff, the physios, the medical staff, and they don't know these people. And so to go away together and have that time where they haven't got the pressure of games to connect and communicate, uh, I, I think they found it really positive. Also, just to be relaxed. Yeah. I mean, yes. I don't think you, you know that's a luxury that English football hasn't had ever really <laughs> well, you, you no. know, I was always quite envious of the you know the European nations that had a winter break because yeah. it felt such a logical thing to do and particularly as you know football has become more and more intense and the circus around it has become ramped up in in recent years so I often felt it was a tough one for players to just mm. have to keep going and keep going and keep going um, so I think this is a really healthy thing I'm fascinated to see how it affects teams because on the one hand, I mean, I think Sheffield United was brought up as an example of like, they don't really want to have an interruption to their rhythm. You know, oh, yeah. I think if you're on a good thing, it can, yeah, even sometimes with an international break, it can come at the wrong time for you. you or, know, that might or be the right Yorkshire. Time. I don't know. Might be a Yorkshire thing as well, that. Oh, no, we just want to keep playing. You know, it's like John Radford used to always wear short sleeves because <laughs> it's, it's something like, I don't know, maybe not. But we'll see, won't we, uh, at the weekend? They got Newcastle on Sunday. Uh, before we go, because mainly we have been talking about Dennis Burkamp, uh, let's have a tune. Amy, you had a good one, actually. Well, I mean, it's an obvious one, but Denis, Denis, because I always love a bit of Blondie. But actually thinking about it, um, I think I'm going to go for Bring Me Sunshine by Morecambe and Wise. <laughs> <laughs> and way back in 98 when Dennis had that golden season and I was involved in a, in a documentary on Dennis. Yeah. And that was the, the farewell tune and there was this, this footage and photos of him as a kid and growing up and it was the Bring Me Sunshine. It was just perfect. In this world where we live There should be more happiness So much joy you can give to each brand new bright tomorrow. James? Well, I mean, Dennis did bring us all a lot of sunshine, so I think that's a pretty good case. I was going to have Cold as Ice, because uh, he was the Ice Man, obviously, by MOP. I like it. I was trying to find some Dutch music 
But d- d- apparently they've never made any good Dutch music ever. <laughs> I think they should be banned from having musical instruments. I've listened to them quite a bit and it's nothing I could find. You're looking at me like, oh, no, hang on a minute. Well, there's a, a, a tweet that um, came in about a Dutch song. Oh, uh, a song about drinking about beer and... and drinking. I mean, he would absolutely load this thing. It's bonkers. One, two, three, four, Dennis Beer. Dennis Beer. That's why they shouldn't be allowed to. They should confiscate musical instruments at the border. Anyway, it's well known in Holland. Um, that's it. We have been uh, handbrake off at the Arsenal podcast, The Athletic. And for ad-free podcasts, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can get a 40% discount now by using the code ARSENALPOD. Thank you to Amy. Thank you to James. Thanks to Lee Dixon. Thank you to Charlie Jones, who has stepped in for Teo, uh, who's been away. Uh, but most of all, thank you to Dennis Burke. Mm-hmm.